0: Tanakwe, Uh, welcome to our podcast, Views from Down Under. I am your host, Alex Tan, and I have with me my co-host, Nick Koo, and fellow panelists, uh, June Chris Espia, Orson Tan, and Neil Van Vary. Today in this episode, uh, we cover the speeches delivered by New Zealand Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, Three speeches, in fact, in a span of 10 days, Uh, from July 7th to July 17th. These speeches were delivered to the New Zealand Institute of International Affairs, a speech to NATO partners, and then a speech to the China Business Summit here in New Zealand. I personally don't recall uh, that there has been such a situation in New Zealand where uh, there were so many foreign policy speeches uh, delivered in such a short space of time. Uh, with the intensification of the US-China strategic competition in our region, and all the action and the reaction that has followed suit, uh, for example, AUKUS, Quad, the chip wars, even talk of NATO in the Asia-Pacific, which was we covered in our last episode, uh, New Zealand as a Five Eyes uh, member and an IP4 partner of NATO, but a small state with a large economic exposure to the PRC, um, is one of many states in the world that has to get the balance correct with its relations between the two great powers of US and China. So, let's start out this uh, chat for today uh, with the first question. You know, After reading the three speeches uh, of the prime minister, uh, did the prime minister's speech work? Did he basically deliver the right speech And if not, what it should look like? Uh, Can I ask uh, Nick to start the uh, ball rolling here?
1: Well, just let me just say good morning. And um, this is a very timely topic. Um, There is a reason why we have three speeches in quick succession. And that is because the international context for New Zealand foreign policy is an increasingly turbulent one. And this has been made clear in all the speeches but even if we zoom out a little bit and look at it in terms of the timeline, if we inspect uh, Prime Minister Hipkin's predecessor, Jacinda Ardern's previous two speeches at the NZWIA uh, event in 2018 and 2021, we will see this trend of an increasingly turbulent international environment. So over time, uh, things have uh, deteriorated. Now, we can then get into a discussion of why and so forth, but that's a very important point to note because what this has done is that it has highlighted for New Zealand that it really needs to up its game and try to get on the front foot. Now, this turns out to be a very challenging thing to do because purely by dint of geography, New Zealand has a default position of being quite reactive to international events and this has been clear in the entire post cold War era um, it is a point that is underlined by uh, Gerald Hensley a uh, former high-ranking uh, New Zealand government official uh, in a very influential and important article in June uh, of this year uh, in the post right which is a uh, New Zealand newspaper published out of Wellington it used to be the of former former Dominion Post. So what he's done is he's highlighted this, and and indeed it resonates with our historical and contemporary experience uh, in New Zealand. And in particular, it underlines a very, very fundamental point, which is that during this period in the post-Cold War era, over the last three decades, we've constructed a series of domestic norms that seem to be appropriate for the time and certainly enjoy the um, endorsement of a uh, relatively broad swath of the um, kind of intelligentsia that looks at these issues Uh, and and in many respects uh, has kind of fed down into the general population where there's a, I would say, a degree of uh, complacency in respect to foreign policy. And this is all highlighted by General Hensley's Uh, Article, but is also apparent to many of us who who kind of pay attention to these matters. So there's a sharp divergence between a kind of domestic politics slash domestic constructed norm, Uh, you know, for example, non nuclear, uh, a relatively non aligned foreign policy, apart from the alliance with Australia, which, by the way, as uh, Hensley points out, and as we can see quite clearly, uh, the Australian alliance with New Zealand is increasingly facing challenges because any Alliance to to be worth its salt has to be responding to external environment and meeting the challenges. And as we've seen uh, and highlighted by the prime minister himself, the external environment is getting more turbulent and New Zealand needs to respond. And we are at this pivot point where we are beginning to craft a response. And what the prime minister has done in this speech is to highlight that there will be a series of reviews that will be coming out over the next few months uh, and also in next year, that are going to address the situation. So, in some respects, uh, to address your question, Alex, does the speech do its job? Uh, and I, I suppose it does, in the sense that it fills the gap. But there's more to come uh, to kind of meet the challenges that uh, New Zealand faces. And, and let, let's you know, let's be clear that this is not a, a only one. Uh, uh, it's only a issue that New Zealand faces. It is something that the entire region faces. And uh, unfortunately, this is a reminder that the international politics has changed in very stark ways that were not predicted uh, over the last twenty years.
0: So yeah, I'll just kind of yeah. leave it at that. Yeah, guys, chip in. I think
2: when we when we talk about New Zealand's foreign policy and how effective the speeches or Hicken's speech is going to be or speeches are going to be, we have got to think about what was the aim for him to give this speech. Like Nick mentioned, there's a real domestic aspect to New Zealand's foreign policy in terms of how they position themselves and the myth of that the myth that we make of how independent our, our foreign policy is. And the way that the way that we are doing or the way that Hitkins has been pushing out these speeches seem to be a lot like it's catered towards the upcoming elections and how he's trying to Assure the New Zealand public that they're not going to have a sharp pivot away from what is tried, true, tested, what they're used to, and that the whatever, that his Labour government or his Labour Party is going to be focused on domestic issues, solving the, the thing because they've got they've got the foreign policy and the international relations all down pat. Yeah, 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 makes sense.
3: Jun, yeah, to just to add more to some of the points raised by uh, Nick and Orson, and the beauty about speeches is that. Speeches always try to speak to particular kinds of audiences. And if you look through these three speeches, they seem to be speaking to two different kinds of audiences. And they're not necessarily the ones that are in front of the speaker, in this case, the prime minister, when the time it was delivered. How I would look at it is that when you look at the NATO speech, the NATO summit speech, who was he speaking to? He was speaking about... The need for like-minded partners to deal with issues such as challenges to the international rule-based order, to issues of territorial integrity, to human rights, and to issues of environmental and economic well-being. Now, if we think about this as speaking to the audience, then and your audience is uh, the ministers of other countries, then it's slightly, to me, coming out as 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 flat because yeah. it is simply rehashing what New Zealand has already done. When you compare it to what the other countries have already done, it's like, okay, we've done better. But as Orson had said, if you think about the NATO speech as speaking to a domestic audience, you know, it sounds like, as they like putting it here, New Zealand is really punching above its weight. Mm -hmm. You know, that we're small, but we have imposed sanctions against Russia. Oh no, we're big enough to talk to China and tell them, can you... Intervene constructively in the Ukraine conflict, yep. and this is a great thing to say yep. in an election year, particularly when your party is, you know, sliding down the polls. Yeah, the two other speeches, though, are really speaking to a more international audience. I think. Um, I would say that the China Business Summit speech would be speaking really to the business audience and mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. establishment. It is. Mm-hmm. it is the 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 NZIA is really what I would call the sticking to the guns speech. Yeah. You know, we're sticking to our guns, and our guns are that we will not be departing from the foreign policy status quo. Don't expect me to say something outrageous or grand today, but that we're sticking to our, some of us have called it a myth earlier, a history of our principal independence, and that they went as far as saying, you know what, we might be the best little country in the world.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, Neil, what do you think? Well, um some very good points made so far. I think in, in relation to the NZII speech, I agree that there was uh, it was a good lay of the land, but what the speech from my view failed to give us was any prospective ideas about how to proceed forward. And I think that, I, I think that, yeah. I think Nicks right because there is a lot more to come which will decide what we intend to do going forward. But what, what also struck me was the domestic element of these speeches and the fact that they are meant for a domestic audience. And if we just pick one issue from the speech, which is when he said we need a a combat-capable defense force, what struck me was, well, how do you intend to sell that domestically? Because this morning I was looking at the Ipsos figures for the NZ Issues Monitor poll, which they release. Since 2018 to today, the period in which we've seen geostrategic competition take place in the Indo-Pacific and the world become a little more turbulent, defense and foreign policy together was the very bottom of the top 20 issues which New Zealanders cared about. But between 1% and 2% of New Zealanders which they polled, and their sample size was 1,000 for each of these polls, said defence of foreign policy was the top was one of the top three issues for them. So it was a good speech, but how do you intend to bring the domestic audience on board, particularly with things like defence, was what stood out to me.
0: Yeah, I think in in, in, in a way uh, the New Zealand... Uh Uh, Perceptions of Asia uh, survey done by uh, the New Zealand Asia Foundation also speaks to the New Zealand public uh, uh, feeling that there's a heightened importance of security and defense issues. The problem, of course, is how do you actually sell it to the domestic domestic audience? And all of us uh, were picking up that there's uh, quite a bit of that domestic audience component uh, with regards to the speech. So the question is... How do you sell that? I also picked up uh, the same thing, uh, particularly on the NZIIA speech, because it's quite bland uh, going forward. It's just a rehash of what has been said. A lot of generalities, the usual things about uh, New Zealand has an independent foreign policy. Um, I personally feel that I'm not sure about that. I think New Zealand strives to have some strategic autonomy in foreign policy decisions, but whether we are completely independent, that is a different issue uh, altogether.
2: How how much do you think this is due to, or rather in response to Andrew Little's speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue? Because at Shangri-La, when Andrew Little spoke, it was the first time that New Zealand actually spoke about them being focused on national security, increasing on defence, and that was quite a a shift away from our standard standard way of talking about New, uh, New Zealand foreign policy. Yeah, and then immediately after that, you have Mahuta coming out and saying, "Oh no, you know we're yeah. still the same." Yeah. And then now, Hickens is repeating, "No, we're still the same." Maybe, maybe Labour's thinking that, "Oh no, we've made a little misstep," and then now we're trying to yeah. backtrack on that and tell people, oh, "Yeah, we are investing in defence, but it's still part of our same old independent
0: foreign policy that's going on." Yeah, I think I think there's a lot to do with the uh, within. It does show the ambivalence within the country, right? They're still yeah. they're still trying to sell it to the public to get a social license for the next steps of what they do. So the tricky part in in my view is how do you prepare the public for that? How do you change the narrative so that for whatever decision, foreign policy decision that we make, that the government makes, there will be buy-in, yeah. right? Because it really surprised me that, uh, that uh, besides the usual generalities, that statement that came in that, uh, with regards to the need for more yeah. uh, security and defense uh, investment was quite a giveaway in my mm-hmm. view. Uh, it's slightly different from what has been said in the past. And but you know, I was looking at these uh, statistics of how we we're spending or doing our defense spending, for example, here in New Zealand. Uh, on average uh, between, uh, was it uh, 1960 to 2021, the average New Zealand expenditure for uh, defense spending is 1.93% of GDP. Mm-hmm. But in 2021, it was 1.3 something, you know, and we are not in the 2% for sure. So it means yeah. to say that uh, I'm sure that it also meant to say that capabilities, uh, assets, uh, are we don't have that much investment on that. So uh, how to sell to the public when in, there is, in an election year, there's contesting uh, priorities for budgets and monies, and defense is only one of those items. So, and but they also can be very expensive if if, if you do that. So, how do you phrase that? That's where I I,
2: I think that's why Hitkins is quite clear measured. about talking about the Ukraine crisis conflict and talking about the 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 I won't say the threat of China, but the the com- conflict of interest that. Uh, New Zealand and China might have. Like he, when you he talk about the NZ IA speech where he talks about how uh, New Zealand did not brush over the fact that when the, for, when the foreign ministers of New Zealand and China met, there was a bit of a rough kind of meeting at, at yeah, that sense.
0: That's right, that's right.
2: Yeah, and if you look through all his speeches, he's quite at pains to talk about how that even though China is, yes, number one market, number one trade partner, we are very different and we are willing to go toe-to-toe against them and that kind of thing. So it, it, he's trying to build that sense of conflict yeah. for the public to see, see that oh, not everything is all sunshine, rainbows. You can't hold your hands and, and, and expect things to be good. We are moving forward into a turbulent world yeah, and therefore we need to prepare for that.
0: Let me saturate to this next question that uh, that uh, uh, will follow up on this as well. So is this simply a case of a foreign policy that has not been tested In the post-Cold War era, uh, such that you know there had not been, we don't. New Zealand didn't have to choose between conflicting imperatives, uh, so to speak. Uh, Nick, what do you see on that?
1: Yes, I, I think this is a very good point that you've made. I mean, there's a definite challenge in New Zealand's foreign policy and reconciling that, as we've discussed, with the domestic politics of foreign policy. Yep, and so. It's pretty clear that the public hasn't fully gotten on board with the reality of what's going on in the world and so how do you adjust that well one way is of course we given the complexities of an election year you then boot off the timing of the reviews till next year mm-hmm. right that's right uh, so that kind of depoliticizes it uh, and I think that, in the short run, it's helpful. But eventually, structural environment is going to impinge on New Zealand's domestic politics, however much we prefer that not to occur. And so this is the big change over over the last 10 years that has, in a sense, imposed itself on New Zealand foreign policy. no state likes to face a challenging environment where it has to choose between its perceived interests and its perceived values, right? No, no state wants to do that. But the fact of the matter is we are in a chained international environment. And so, therefore, New Zealand has to respond. Um, it's interesting to me that if you go through the speech and look at the number of times the word national interest occurs, yeah. six times, yeah. I've never actually seen this number of references to the national interest uh, in a recent speech. Yep. Certainly not in the two speeches that Hipkin's predecessor, um, Jacinda Ardern, uh, delivered at the NZIA. Mm-hmm. So we are in a different environment, a different structural mm-hmm. environment, and the country has to respond. So um, this actually raises the question of structure versus agency. What is New Zealand's agency in all of this? Yeah. And this is where yeah. I think the... The speech really gave us a little bit of a sense of what's to come with the various reviews, but really, ultimately, for political reasons uh, as well—you know, very pragmatic political reasons—hasn't been articulated.
0: Yeah, I think in the in, in this sense, that this particular speech. Uh, is quite expected, right? It's quite Mm -hmm. a safe speech to deliver uh, for the prime minister. It kind of reminds me of an old Bruce Springsteen song, uh, the (laughs) conundrum that New Zealand has. And just, just a few verses from it, right? You're so afraid of being somebody's fool, not walking tough, baby, not walking cool. You walk cool, but darling, can you walk the line and face the ties that bind? I think that's uh, something to be said about that, that in the reality is uh, uh, whether this foreign policy, the so-called independent foreign policy that New Zealand has has not been tested in the post-Cold War situation. In my view, there is some interesting uh, differences here. In the Cold War, we're in the largest trading partner, coming from a political economy perspective, right, where your largest trading partner also happens to be the same group as in your alliance, right? So the United States and the Western Alliance are providing free trade, very big markets, and what have you. On the other other side, the communist bloc of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, you are not really interconnected to them economically. So in that sense, where the security, the hard power security, and the economic side are converging, it was easy, right? Mm-hmm. So in the late 1980s, it was not too hard to to for New Zealand to play that independent foreign policy game. Um, in the 1990s, going forward as well uh, with the ANZUS breakup, it wasn't too difficult because there's only one power; there's not other significant challengers to it. Yep. This time around, there is quite a significant difference. Mm. You have your traditional allies and friends and partners that. May not be all your largest market now, mm-hmm. and you have an extreme dependence on a, you know, three, 30% of our, you know, nearly 30%, definitely number one trading partner for New Zealand is China, both ways trading. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that you have such a dependence on China, but then your values don't really converge. Yep. So you have economic interests that converge, but you diverge, which really puts a big, big test on this so called independent foreign
4: policy yeah. right so ne- just in the uh, political economy part and i think this touches a bit about the new zealand agency point that nick was making and austin's point about hipkins making those references to china by saying the decay there is common economic interests but there is that divergence going back to the speech he used the phrase spreading your eggs in different baskets economically and my point here i suppose is, is twofold one is How are you going to do it? Because the international context is such that the U.S. is in no position at the moment because of its own domestic politics and seems very reluctant to offer you any market access. So where are you going to spread your eggs to? Secondly, I think that it also tells us a bit about the fact that New Zealand's own domestic political economy constrains its own agency. Our specialization was what? The primary sector. Yes, yeah. right. That's Which is right. one of the most protected sectors. That's right. It is quite off putting for some potential trade partners, India being the case in point, because New Zealand loves to go on talking about having a trade, trade deal with yeah. India. They've had 10 rounds of negotiations to no avail, and they always fail because they keep saying India isn't going to open up its own dairy. Well, you know, dairy is always a protected sector in India. Then New Zealand comes back and says, oh, the Aussies struck a trade deal with us, why can't we? In my view, that's fundamentally a flawed assessment from New Zealand's perspective. Because if your comparative advantage is just in one sector, you're constraining yourself. So it's all well and good to to, to paint that picture of China saying, you know, we we are standing up to uh, those points of differences. But when push comes to shove and you're in a position where you can't spread those eggs, what are you really going to do? I just don't think we figured out an adequate answer to that problem, given how things are working domestically and internationally for us. Emil, yeah, yeah.
0: you put up a very good point with regards to the industrial structure of New Zealand itself mm-hmm. as, a, as a limit. In fact, in fact, the China Business Summit speech that Chris Hipkins, uh, uh, um, Chris Hipkins, the Prime Minister, stated in this China Business Summit speech about he's aware that... Diversification is important and trade diversification is important. That, that in a way, putting all your eggs in one basket is not a good idea. In, even in investments, right? You don't put all your eggs in one basket mm-hmm. you spread it around. But the problem for New Zealand is that when dairy and agricultural products are the main exports to China, and going forward, I think I'm, I'm a bit worried for New Zealand because we're exporting milk and dairy and meat but we will be importing a lot of EVs, electric, <laughs> electric vehicles, yep. which are a lot more expensive. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how many, how many gallons of milk we have to sell over before we can, we can recoup the imbalance in the trade going forward, right? So with that, it actually limits your possibilities. Now, where do you spread it? Do you Southeast Asia enough? Even, you know, yeah. despite CPTPP, New Zealand, my understanding is we've been trying to get a, a deal with uh, Japan for the longest time. Yep. And if it was not for CPTPP, we still wouldn't have mm-hmm. uh, an FTA with Japan. We are having a difficult time having asking the United States for an FTA mm-hmm. because I, I, I think it's not in right now. Go yeah, ahead, Dan.
3: And, and going back to the point made by Alex here about, you know, it will be a bit easier in the Cold War because your blocks are clearly aligned and you know who's with and who's with not. And I think if you think about it that way, then you would see that even in the choices of FTAs and potential trading partners, New Zealand is also constrained in a lot of ways by it coming early on as some sort of uh, you know the um, beacon of, of liberal values. And it therefore kind of limits how it could potentially flip to a, a more pragmatic stance in terms of the, its alliances, and its interest. And and you would see this in, in the, the three speeches as well, that there's an attempt to toe the line, but also in this case, pragmatic in- economic interest and in all of its um, uh, position on various kinds of issues. And, and you know you would see here that Hipkins does go back to New Zealand's position on nuclear disarmament and nonproliferation, climate change, human rights, and the liberal rules-based order, but also the really pragmatic concerns that you've been talking about as a small trading state that's quite far away from everyone, but unfortunately could not totally isolate itself as the Ukraine war had demonstrated, that a disruption in the global supply chain, even if you are at the end of the chain, has dire economic consequences yes, domestically. Yes, sure, and we sure. see that in terms of the cost of living, high inflation rates. And, 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 that's, and that's, that's, what that's what
2: he pointed out with the whole point about COVID and the impact of COVID
3: as well. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, So there is a bit of a departure from a really strong value-based ideolo- ideological stance on various issues, but not really. Because he, in the end, you still are a small trading state. Yeah. Unfortunately, at the end of the world.
0: I, I saw, I saw. I read in the, uh, at least of two of the three speeches mm-hmm use the same word, bread and butter yep. issues, yep. you know, yep. the yep. bread yes. and butter right. issues. So you can see, you can, read, you can literally see the focus is on domestic. <laughs> and granted that the, the speeches um, were given within three, four months of a general election, right? Yep. So the focus has to be on the domestic audience, on what it means, how do you translate and, and interpret international events to the voters? Because we know that economic voting is statistically significant predictor of voting behavior, yep. right? So, yep. uh, so yep. that's that. Uh, Orson?
2: I, I think one of the things that we need to note is that how much effort that the government is currently trying to put into informing the New Zealand public that the stakes of the game has changed. Yeah. yeah. Like like the status yep. quo group that that state that conservative status quo group of New Zealand foreign policy intelligence here who always say that oh you know we have an independent foreign policy because when the we broke off uh relationships with the united or we had that rough patch of relationship with the united states we were able to go on our own and all that kind of thing they forget that the u.s was not your well, was not in a in effect using their economy as a as a as leverage. a stick yeah. uh, as a leverage against you you know your your stakes are yeah. totally changed when you have a situation now where China, who, when they're not happy with you, they put tariffs. you know, like the case of Australia and, and the, the comment about the origins of COVID and all that. So what, I think what's happening now is we see a more progressive segment of government trying to push forward these messages and trying to educate the, the general nation that, you know, the stakes of the you know, we are playing a totally different poker game at the moment, yep. and, and therefore we need to m- start moving forward and, and stop s- being stuck in our past and yeah, living, I, I living I wouldn't, in our not I wouldn't
0: use the word progressive, though. Uh, yeah. I think the progressive <laughs> group is, uh, to me, yeah. a different group. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say that there's a group of, uh, of, of, of New Zealanders, both in academia, in the general public, and also in the officialdom, that are trying to come up with this uh, uh, narrative, right, so to speak, but you are right. Uh, you know, I mean, the main issue of this bread and butter is uh, cannot uh, cannot
4: be neglected, so to speak. Neil? I was just going to say on the point of the independent foreign policy, I find the whole sort of the word, the phrase independent foreign policy quite perplexing. I mean, when you say independent, are you implying that you're completely unaffected by the push and the pulls of the system in which you operate? Are yep. you implying that you're not affected by mm-hmm. the frictions or the undercurrents of the system in which you operate? You're not operating in a void. Yeah. That is, you know, the, the what's happening around you is bound to affect you. It's a different story to say that, yes, we've taken decisions in our own interests. Yes, we are multi-aligned, which means we can work with different partners on different issues, or we are strategically autonomous. Like in the, India. Uh, like India, as you said earlier, yeah. Professor yeah. Tan. Um yeah. I'm much more open if it's if it's spoken about in those terms as opposed to saying oh we are independent. And in that regard, I think the speech did a slightly better job and it said oh independence does not mean neutral yeah, or isolationist. Yeah. I think it's about time we stop calling it independent and calling it what it is, which is multi-alignment. We are operating in our interest like any other country does. There's no point yeah. sitting on the model high ground saying oh we are independent. Yeah, but
2: yeah. Uh, multi-aligned doesn't sound as good, you know? Doesn't make us feel as well, good yeah, about well, ourselves. Well, it's, it's, it's that
4: point of the model high ground, doesn't it? We punch above yeah, our yeah. weight. Yeah. Yeah, that sort yeah. of stuff. It's yeah. it's. Yeah. I think it's time to come back to planet Earth. You know what or-
0: Orson brought up a mm-hmm. very interesting point about New Zealand trades in the past, uh, wherein the major uh, country that it trades with does not use e- economics we- and trade as um as a weapon so mm-hmm. to speak. Yep. And this brings me uh, back to uh, Nick you always brings up this word and it stucks on my mind that trade occurs in a strategic context. That's right. Right? So mm-hmm. so the in a way New Zealand now has to realize that trade occurs in a strategic context. But in reality, it always has occurred in a strategic context. Yep. Because yeah. if you look at, you know, the general agreements on tariffs and trade and mm-hmm. during the post-Cold War free trade mm-hmm you know while others would say that the hegemon the United States provided free trade as a public good i beg to disagree a public you know obviously during that period of the post cold war if you are in the wrong camp yeah. you don't get the free trade so yeah. so yeah. public good by definition is non-excludable but, yeah. but but you are able to exclude so free trade regime in the post cold war is not a public good it is yeah. a hegemon's carrot to yeah. keep you uh in the camp which means to say confirming Nick's uh, your point that yeah. trade does occur in a strategic context and we we just have to realize that this is happening this is already so, happening
1: a few a few points here is that um, in many respects the hard reality is that New Zealand foreign policy has been on a kind of holiday from history for the last de- three decades in the post-co era and the Structure of the international environment is actually impacting on New Zealand foreign policy in ways that has basically told us the holiday is over So this is not a easy message to deliver to no anyone. no, yeah, it's,
0: it's not, not it's not
1: I mean it's it, think of uh, a worse message uh, far few uh, few exist so in any case This kind of brings us on very nicely to question number three, Alex, about this whole issue of where there could be areas in the speech that could be clearer. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. 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 And if I could just jump in. Go ahead, go Um, ahead. Yeah, things like um, what does independent foreign policy really mean? And we've been touching on this a little bit here. Um, It's far from clear what independent means. Um, And this is... Perhaps the reason why it has been used so widely because it resists that uh, clear definition. And in fact, while we do see an attempt by uh, the prime minister to begin to define it in the sense that it does not mean neutral, it's defined in the negative. It's not defined as a positive concept of what exactly it is. Now, this could reflect this whole issue of timing ahead of an election. But let's look at the larger structural context. New Zealand's key critical alliance partner is Australia, which has been under a three-year sanctions policy by China, our top trading partner. Mm. Now, if this is not the nightmare from hell, I don't know what is. Mm. And it's interesting that uh, this has actually not been discussed in any of these documents uh, in great detail. And Mm. certainly, uh, to the extent that they have been kind of, in a sense, there's been veiled references Mm -hmm. uh, to this, uh, certainly not explicit references, uh, it really needs to be at the front and center of uh, any articulation of New Zealand foreign policy interests because you are not going to stand by your closest alliance partner. Yeah. Then this really raises big questions about this conflict, which we've highlighted just now, between values and interests in a very, very real way. Yes. And in fact, if we as we move forward, this problem is not going to get easier. Uh, and it also highlights a number of other kind of ambiguities in the. Uh, speech and speeches, rather, which is that what exactly is New Zealand's national interest? Uh, as we know in the international relations literature, uh, the, the concept of national interest is notoriously vague. Yep. And I must say that uh, my suspicions about the, this concept have not been alleviated by these various speeches. Okay? <laughs> so we really need clarification uh, at some point uh, about what exactly New Zealand's national interests are in an increasingly turbulent 21st century. Uh, So this this is another issue. Uh, And also, you know, looking at it more broadly, could it be that somehow there's going to be some type of structural transformation in New Zealand foreign policy more toward, and I don't necessarily endorse this, but more toward a uh, policy that was referenced here, uh, a type of multi-alignment such as that of India, where we actually try to kind of hedge a lot more, and this this would be the clear opposite to some uh, to to a policy of uh, kind of doubling down on the uh, alliance network that we have depended yeah. on for our security over the past. So just a few points to, uh, out there to kind of uh, you know perhaps add to the conversation a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you're 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 right. Uh, this is a big challenge going forward because if we keep on using this term of independent foreign policy we will be pressed eventually to ask yeah. what do you really mean by that you know are you multi-aligned are you but then how do you rate your own national interests as, as a where is your national interest first my my thing about you know where have, where can the speech be clearer is I I think the Prime minister uh, could have talked a little bit more about the issue of, economic security, uh, with the particularly with the sphere of influence that we have in our region, the responsibility yeah. towards South Pacific. So, yep. and Because my view is, is that if we are going to prepare the New Zealand public, you, they keep on, uh, uh, the prime minister and the previous prime minister has said that it's tough out there, it's grim out there, the situation is changing, there's a lot of variable, trade is becoming much more strategic now as well. We need to talk then about How do we prepare the public to this increased defense spending that we would need to increase on defense capabilities, but how do you tie it up to the narrative of protecting our, you know, as we say, taonga, you know, our treasures, right, that our vast exclusive economic zone gives us, right? Mm -hmm. We have, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the fifth or the ninth largest EEZ, but- We are the 100th largest navy, you know. So we have nine ships to patrol so big a territory. So how, yeah. how, you know, my view is is that this statement would these speeches would should have sold a little bit more about how do we protect our own exclusive economic zone mm-hmm. and the, and investing on our own defense defense capabilities. And my preference is really to to develop a coast guard type. Um, a coast guard type unit, so that uh, even the navy can become much more of a coast guard, protecting that EEZ. Yep. Because once you do that, you are really addressing to the future resource competition that's happening, right? Mm-hmm. So China in the Solomon Islands with all these, with all it's China in the Pacific. Oh, yep. You know, personally, I'm I'm more concerned about Chinese fishing vessels swamping the South Pacific rather than ch- Chinese grey hull ships. Yeah. Uh, in the South Pacific, yep. but because if 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 the if these fishing vessels, big ones, right, the Philippines had experienced that, were in their park right in, in the Philippine EEZ, they will outfish you yep. and they will fish it so much that the local, the Filipinos, for example, didn't have any more fish uh, yep. to, uh, to compete. So it's an issue of domestic livelihood. So yep. if you, we can turn these international foreign policy speeches with much more relevance to the domestic uh, audience, to the domestic political economy. I think when people, people do understand it when it hits their livelihood, right? Uh, So security in that sense, uh, because we know security is a multi-dimensional concept, right, so there's one part of it is the military side, but there's also the human security side, the economic security
4: side, right? I was just going to say to add to your point, I agree that the inclusion of economic security in our discussion of security is very much needed. And to refer to your point about uh, the size of our EEZ and our ships, I just crammed some numbers yesterday. We have one ship to patrol every 400,444 square kilometers of of area. Now, if we compare that to Singapore, for example, who's got 40 ships and just over 1,000 square kilometers of EEZ, that's one ship for every 25 square kilometers. And that's where we are. You know, we need those kinds of statistics to tell the public what's really happening. Um, And the government's own... Um, strategic foreign policy assessment document now says the Pacific is no longer strategically benign. Yep. No, yeah, it does. And yep. and I think we need to consider all that in our in our in our discussion. And more than security, more than the hardcore security, it's really the economic
0: security because it's resource competition, Absolutely. right? China
4: yep. is growing, uh, middle
0: class, fish very important as part of the protein diet of everyone. Yep. So they're gonna come here with their fishing boats, and um, it's gonna it's gonna be. Taking away from the Pacific Islands, you know, their a lot of their resource, and our own resource here in this huge EEZ that we are I mean, supposed to be. It's patrolled. not just China, right? Because yeah. it's Japan, it's, it's Taiwan. Japan. Yeah. There's yeah. Taiwan, the, South Korea,
2: all these Northeast, Northeast Asian countries are running out of of, you know, ocean resource in terms of your fishes, whatever they can extract, and they're looking for their new sources. That's why Taiwan has encroached into Philippines. Japan is also fishing further down south. Everyone's looking for that, you know. And with global warming as well and climate change, changing the way the currents flow and changing the patterns of it, how the fish migrate, you know, we're going to see increased competition in the area. But I think one thing that Nick talked about, which was very interesting, is this whole idea of our relationship with Australia that in, in New Zealand foreign policy, we don't talk about enough. And I think it's because it's really complicated. Because what was that? When Chris Hipkins announced the whole pathway to residency for Kiwis living in Australia, what was yeah. National's response to that? National said, National put up an ad saying that this Labor government is promote promote promoting Kiwis leaving the country, helping Kiwis leave the country yeah. and yeah. settle somewhere else. And, and if if we start talking about us aligning closer to Australia, then Kiwis here will ask, you know, what makes us different from Australians? Then
3: yeah. You know, the, the interesting point about what Alex and Neil here has raised is that, you know, we are a small archipelago, yeah. but both the public and the policy elites don't think that way. Mm. We are a small archipelago that doesn't have a small island kind of thinking. And and it reflects on what the defense posture is, where the budget prioritization is. So we're ninth largest EEZ in the world, 100th uh, <laughs> smallest <Largest> Navy, <laughs> but also... Um, I'll go back to what Alex has said earlier that the Whitehall, the Coast Guard, might actually be easier to sell yes. to the to the New Zealand I public. So, not too. only is it cheaper, but also, you know, it grinds less against this this idea that we're arming ourselves to the feet to fight. We're not doing that. We're simply looking our, after our resources. But
0: in my view, that would be considered, in, in, in my view, if New Zealand does take that position of of developing the White House ship capability, so to speak, of its Navy, mm-hmm. then we can literally burden shift, yeah. right? Because then we have more response, we can take more yep. of the responsibility for the South Pacific region, freeing up in a way, it becomes a meaningful contribution of New Zealand to mm-hmm. number one, our own patrolling of our own EEZ and our sphere of responsibility in a way, uh, our Pacific Island neighbors and what have you. and And then it frees up many of the assets of our allies and our partners to some other regions but as long as we take ownership of our own eez patrolling protection you know from poaching you know from uh overfishing as a case in point and from you know all the illegal activities drugs. that you can see in the high seas drugs you know human mm-hmm. trafficking yep you know, all of that stuff. I
4: think we bring something to the table in terms of how we present ourselves to our partners and our allies. Well, let let me
0: just
1: comment a little bit. Sorry, sorry, Jeff. Go go ahead, Uh, Nick. This this point about the holiday from history and how hard it is to get back to work. Yep. um, (laughs) You know, the the fact of the matter is, for us living in New Zealand, um, there is a very deep strand, arguably a, a, a norm, of neutrality and Mm non-alignment that is in many respects diverges from our pre-1986 history where we were closely aligned. Mm -hmm. Now the Australian alliance with New Zealand is kind of I'd argue the last legacy of that era and so we're in this transitional era where really everything is up for grabs and if anything our discussion today highlights the fact that we still really haven't made a decision either way. Now, it's very clear we have a preference for the liberal international order. Yes. But at the same time, uh, the liberal international order doesn't necessarily put food on the plate. It's actually the trade that puts food on the plate. And that's actually where China points. And it's hard to deny reality and facts. So uh, my sense is that the, the New Zealand polity, which includes politicians and the general public, itself hasn't come to a full internalization yeah. of the depth of the issue in front of us. Yeah. And, uh, and it's made particularly tough to make a decision because the structural realities that require a decision are so at variance. There's such great imperative of power, great power politics is so unaligned and divergent from our preference for a peaceful international system that it's, there's a type of cognitive dissidence going on mm-hmm. where we can't make a choice. And yeah. so what happens is its events cause us to have to make a choice. So, for example, nobody can deny three years of Chinese coercion of Australia, which yeah. is our number one yeah. alliance partner. And as a result, the, the, the New Zealand foreign policy, uh, I hesitate to say the establishment because I know that there are many people in there who are fully aware of this, but they can't necessarily make a decision unless the politicians get on board with And inform the public and say look these are your options we need to make a decision ahead of time a strategic decision otherwise we will be forever playing catch up and these uncomfortable realities um, which by the way have a a material basis in the sense that our geography allows us to kind of avoid making decisions because things come late to us that's a reality plus the material incentive to Get on well with China, just reinforce. So, you know what? It's it's a really tough uh, foreign policy decision to make. It may not even be one decision. It may be a series of decisions that we that we are required to make that in the end add up to something. Um, and who knows? For for all I know, we end up muddling through. But that's a really dangerous course to take because it means your fate is in the hands of great powers.
0: But, but- I, I think I think though. Uh- Besides the politicians uh, doing that part to informing the public and whatever, I think there is a responsibility uh, for academia, for uh, people in the know, uh, think tanks or experts, uh, both in government, in and outside of government to actually inform the public and educate the public with regards to that. Because it is going to be, going forward, a very, very complicated situation for New Zealand when we're only just reacting to things. There I mean, are things that we can anticipate, I suppose, uh, I mean, and we that, can already see that.
1: Alex, that's a, a fantastic point, because it highlights the need for, uh, for example, uh, I mean, in fact, this is the imperative that kind of got us boot start, boot, booting up this uh, dialogue. That's right, right that's uh, right. And also, um, in, the, in the national interest, if I may roll out this concept again, in the national interest, there needs to be a clear and meaningful dialogue between those of us who feel that New Zealand is late to the game, and those who feel that actually we're on the right path. Because yeah. if, if there wasn't this huge group that felt we were basically on the right path, we wouldn't be where we are now. So yeah, there yeah. needs to be a dialogue between these two sets of opinions. And, and for all I know, there will be another uh, uh, view possibly. Um, but the, the, the dialogue needs to start now before the international environment gets so Stark that we actually are forced to kind of react.
0: Yeah, and the dialogue should be much more widespread rather than just you yep. know concentrated in the halls of, you know, yeah, bureaucracies or in, right. inside the beehive or in Wellington. Because after all, you know what we're what we're taught. What the prime minister's speech going back is really showing that uh, that there is an. It's very very important for political parties, for the government, for uh, for anyone who is going to take over government in the future that they should have a social license, right? That's right. Being, you know, living in a democracy, in mm-hmm. a very robust mm-hmm. democracy as we have here in New Zealand, we definitely, public opinion does matter. Yep. And, and yep. But leaders have to lead. Right? Leaders right. have to lead. They have to lead that conversation. They have to bring in that conversation. And that one reason why I said that we, it's the responsibility of all New Zealanders to start talking about this uh, because when politicians get to their possession they're automatically tied up by the electoral cycle of 3 years you yep. know uh, people always say that there's no votes in foreign policy so to speak because they're all domestic focused so how do we bring in uh, this is you know why we're here and why we're chatting amongst ourselves and hopefully others will pick up on this we, uh, chat as well
2: i think we're talking
0: about basically
2: a paradigm shift of New Zealand for New Zealand society. N- June said he thinks that, you know, the New Zealand political elite uh, do not think like a small island, but we think exactly like a small island, a small island that's is so far removed from everybody else that we think that we are a floating silo that no one can touch us. Mm. And and that mm. that paradigm has shaped New Zealand's view of the world. You know, you think about how we, we styled ourselves as, as, as down underer you know being that little frog in the well from that little corner and that's exactly what new zealand sees itself as you know so far removed that half the time people who produce maps leave new zealand off the map yeah and 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 we and we need to, to change that 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 view of ourselves and and show and help the new zealand public and, and the nation to understand that we are much more connected we are much
0: more Closer. Closer than we yeah, think. Yeah, I mean, so I, yeah, yeah. In, in my classes, I used to say that uh, we feel really relaxed because we have a large moat around us. Yeah. But actually, this is getting smaller, right? Mm-hmm. With a much more integrated yeah. world. We, you know, I mean, in the last 10 minutes, I want to segue to this last question that we have. Um, do we think that the NZ foreign policy, whichever, uh, could change if uh, a new party would come around? So do... Uh, do we see much change occurring in New Zealand foreign policy, whichever party or coalition secures victory in this uh, upcoming election? Let's start with June first.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, if we look at how everybody's doing the polls right now and, you know, granting without admitting meeting that it's going to be a national coalition, you, what is national campaigning for right now? Well, cost of living, law and order. Tough on crime. Public infrastructure, uh, climate and agriculture. Which all points to me like, are we looking at another inward turn? You know, in the oscillations of turning and looking outward. Although, last year you could recall that uh, Jerry Brownlee was in fact quite vocal about criticizing how the Labour government has dropped the ball on, on the Pacific. And, you know, we should pick up the gaps where, you know, Australia is doing some of these things, but New Zealand not so much. So, a national win? kind of looks a bit ambivalent to me right now on where they're they're going towards this um, but it also reminds me about uh, this material by David McCraw a uh, couple of decades ago about how we called New Zealand is a variation in the small state theme when you think about parties and uh, s- small states and he did say that labor does have a certain kind of a direction towards foreign policy in that it is between the two actually more inward looking than national. I'm not quite sure how do you see these guys now 20 years down the road?
0: Mm.
4: Neil? Uh, I think June made a very good point. Uh, Based on the speeches, we have a vague idea of what Labour's trying to do. I think in national's case, I do agree with June, they haven't really shown us their spots yet, what they might do going forward. But if we look at the if if we look at historically what they've done, and certainly recent sort of uh, interviews that John yeah. Key's done, he seems to be a little hesitant in terms of talking about China or calling them out in the way that mm. perhaps Labour might be comfortable in doing. Um, but I wonder if you know if if in the future there is that external shock, I suppose, or an external event which makes the region. Uh, Full of well not full of but 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 what makes but holes. yeah yeah I, I think it it sort of brings in more hostile uh, events to the region. I wonder if that might sort of burst the bubble of this idea that isolation is insulation. You know the 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 element that geography plays in a way, and yeah. because we can see that in, in 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 how Australia responds to events and New Zealand does. You know the question of geography there is very much influential in Australia's yeah, case. Yeah, and just just a, a a second point, I think it it'll be good for both political parties to realize that if you want to keep talking about the rules based international order, which you've made the central plank blanket of this country's foreign policy for quite some time, it's also important to admit that you have to contribute something to try and prevent that rules-based international order from eroding, as opposed to just words. You yeah. have to bring something to the table.
0: Orson?
2: Hmm. I think the event has already happened. You know, China has already made the deal with the Solomon Islands. You, mm, cannot, you cannot turn away from yeah. that. Yeah. You know, that first domino has fallen, and whichever party comes into government in in October, or not even this election cycle, probably the next election cycle, is going to have to face the fact that we have a new political landscape in the South Pacific. And That's there's, right. there's, there's, there's yep. no turning away from that, you know? Yep. That, that, that dropping of the ball has already happened. It's here. Whether it's national, whether it's, it's mm-hmm. Labour, I, I think moving forward in two election cycles, we're going to see a shift of New Zealand foreign policy. It doesn't matter who it is because it's, it's a necessity. Yeah. Uh, Nick? Yeah,
1: yeah I, I think the clear reality is that change is going to come it, it's really what degree it is. And my sense is that it's going to be major change. Um, also, just to pick up on the point that's made here uh, from Neil, we are going to actually be pressed on this whole issue of our contribution to regional security. True. Mm-hmm. Because one of the points with all these speeches that have been discussed here is that. They've done a decent job in highlighting the severity of the deterioration in regional and international security, but they have been very light on defining what New Zealand's response is, which is also another point that, in a sense, kind of underlines the discussion. And um, just to underline it a little more, we're going to be forced to mean what exactly, or rather forced to state what exactly we mean by an independent foreign policy. True. Uh, You mentioned that today, yeah. yeah, um, What does it mean for... Our position on AUKUS, for example, which I'm a little surprised it got to this point till we did mention it, but um, AUKUS is a reality yeah. going forward for the next few decades. And what exactly is our position? Are we going to accept an offer to join Pillar Two? Uh, you know, uh, could it be that we will, but only if relations with China deteriorate so much that our trade relationship with China is also affected? So these are question marks. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole issue of Taiwan. Uh, you know how exactly that issue plays out over the next few years. These are big question marks: South China Sea, East China Sea, uh, the North Korean nuclear issue. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? India-Pakistan, uh, that relationship—it's uh, been quite quiet for a while. Uh, what happens if the Chinese start intervening in that? Uh, a lot of questions. So, uh, one of the points is. The region we live in, the Indo-Pacific, is such a dynamic place, but it's dynamic in many ways and both in positive positive and negative senses. So all the more so that, you know, I think there should be a plurality of voices from New Zealand that actually address these issue from both both the kind of more realist perspective that we bring to the table, but also the kind of more non-realist, liberal, constructivist position that that offers a different lens at it. And because we live in a liberal democracy, which differentiates us from other countries uh, and a a fiercely liberal democratic democratic country, all the more so we believe that dialogue matters and will result in a uh, consensus that is more robust and will bring the country forward. But at the same time, we also got to keep in mind uh, this analogy with uh, the, the 1930s where the liberal democracies were slow to respond to the international environment and that, as we know, ended in tears. So all the more so the stakes are very high and we really need informed discussion across the entire New Zealand polity. So on that point, I'll just kind of... Uh, yeah, yeah, totally
0: yeah. agree. Totally agree that this informed discussion, plurality of voices uh, are very, very much needed. It's, like I said, it's such, it should not be in the confines of the hallways of the Beehive or or our Wellington Beltway type yeah. discussion, but it has to be much wider because the New Zealand public has to be informed that this has have to have a social license to do whatever we want to do, however we shift that foreign policy. I'm, you know, in my view, uh, part of whether the political parties, whichever party wins the next election, the New, New Zealand does have to eventually deal with the problem of the industrial structure. How yeah. do we... For the longest time, many governments have been talking about the, the declining productivity in New Zealand, economic productivity in New Zealand, uh, but not has, not much has been done. And the reason for that is because we are quite constrained uh, in the type of industrial structure we have, yep. and therefore it affects the domestic politics, the electoral politics in the country as well, and, of course, flow on effect to our foreign policy, international policy. So... We have a lot of work to do and you guys uh, brought in a wonderful discussion for the day. Uh, But this is a start. I know that we will continue to talk about this and to help do our part in a way to bring these plurality of voices to the discussion of uh, the challenges that faces New Zealand uh, today and going forward. So with that in mind, uh, I will close off this episode of The View from Down Under. It's been a wonderful chat this morning. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to us. And I hope today's program has been informative uh, to you guys as much as it is, we have enjoyed this chat today. Thank you very much. Thank you. See you all. Thank you. Thanks.